Okay, so today we're going to jump into our study of the prophets. We finished with the wisdom literature books, and so today we will spend a good portion of our time on the construction of the prophets, and then we will begin the book of Isaiah, probably mostly just intros to Isaiah. So it's going to be a lot of intro stuff today. Intro, intro prophets, intro Isaiah. I uploaded a copy of this uh, blank worksheet that I would like you to download at some point and begin filling in. So it has a bunch of the prophets and the meaning of their name, their hometown, location, occupation, date, uh, the kings that they are uh, ministering during, the historical context, and the uniqueness and purpose. So you don't need to do it right this second. Obviously, it has all of the prophets on it, so you're not going to fill it out right away. You can do it over you know, time as we go through them as we study them. But this will be a very handy reference sheet for you. Uh, one page, and you'll have all the prophets and their basic information. All right? I've also uploaded a couple other items uh, from Alan Ross, and I'll mention them as we get a little further into our study today. Uh, but just as a, as a quick note on them, one of them is an exegetical guide. Maybe I should have mentioned this to Robert. messengers 
of God uh, are the prophets. They're, they're called to proclaim God's word. In the earliest period okay, of, of biblical history, the prophetic function was assigned to the Levitical priests. So kind of related at first to the Levitical priests. They were charged with the responsibility of teaching the implications of the Mosaic law for daily conduct in the practice of the life. As the priesthood became increasingly professionalistic in attitude and lax in practice, like Hophni and Phineas, Scriptures says God is not partial, right? Like he has a set of standards, and that 
that is for everybody. And so if he's going to judge the Babylonians for their paganism and their rebellion ultimately against him, well, even if you're his special people, the Israelites in this case, if you're rebellious towards him, what's he going to do? He's going to have to do the same or similar thing, right? And so that, that's what takes place here. They're not exempt, and that's a problem. By the time you get to Jesus' day, Jesus is having conversations with the Pharisees, and they think, oh, well, we're the children of Abraham. It's like, we're good. God's not going to take down the temple. And Jesus is like, you guys are crazy. You know, first off, you're not the children of Abraham, spiritually, right? You don't have the faith. And second off, you think that that building, the limestone block, can't be taken down? Like, you don't understand. So, and secondly, he says, as a group, the latter prophets provide the canon with an interpretation of the history that has already been described in the law and the former prophets. So they're a commentary on what God has already revealed and how the people are living. So it's kind of like God stepping in through the prophet, which is his spokesman, his, his voice, okay, his mouthpiece, stepping into history <coughs> to speak to and to correct the abuses and things that are going on in the pulpit. Next, general info part two. Uh, the prophets are probably not intended to be read in just one sitting because their collections of prophecies over time is these, unlike Genesis and Nathan, I mean, please not tell me that. Unlike Genesis, I would argue, are um, poetic. So these are poetic. And they are a compilation of many things over a large span of time. So you know, Isaiah prophesied for like um, 40 plus years, right? All of that is in, in one book, right? And we'll get to exactly the, the number in a, little, in a little bit when we get to Isaiah. But the covenant was enforced. By blessings and, and um, curses. All right? Now, these are corporate. These are not personal. That's another thing that we need to make a distinction about. This is a covenant with the nation of, of Israel that as a whole, this nation had a special relationship with God out of all the nations of the world. God picked this nation. And so this nation, they are made up of people, but as a nation, they have covenant obligations to God. And when they fail those covenant obligations, there is going to be a consequence. Blessings which takes a form in this life of life of health and prosperity and, and agricultural abundance, abundance and respect and safety. These are all things that are, are blessings God pours out in your life. And curses, which takes the shape of every G word. Just joking, but death, disease, drought, dirt, danger, destruction, defeat, deportation, destitution, and disgrace. So, you know, if you come up with 20 words, that's it. Yeah, that would be the curse of Lord. So, that's your blessings and curses. Most of what is announced is judgment until after the fall of both Israel and Judah. Now, one of the things that will come through in the prophets, pretty much every one of them, most likely, is that there is this warning and this judgment coming, all right? But after God judges them, okay? After they get the punishment, if you will, then the love comes in. And there's the hope. And there's the promise of a, of a new day. God is going to have a new day. And so both of these things are intertwined. 
once punishment is complete, the salvation or promise or both is ours. And we'll talk about what those are a little bit later on. Next is the focus of prophecy. What is the focus? The first thing is that it reveals God's will. God wants something done. God wants a correction put in place, and the prophet speaks for God. The second thing is that it sparks change due to one of the following things. Okay, Now, in the situation where uh, revelation of God is about communication, God is, is speaking, but he, he's speaking because he wants something done. He's speaking because he wants a relationship. So you have some options of, of things that could obstruct that. So why do people not follow after God? Well, it could be because God didn't speak to them yet, right? It could be God hasn't revealed himself, which is why, again, the, the, the proverb says that people, you know that too, without they perish, but more accurately, people without the revelation of God cast off restraints and go amok. Again, without the revelation of God, without the communication of God into their life. The other thing is, maybe a messenger of God has not been willing to speak to them. So this is why in the, in the church we talk about the need for evangelism, right? Someone's got to take the message. That's why uh, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel, right? But actually he's quoting from Isaiah. So actually Isaiah says it. And so the idea that we have to bring the message. Maybe the speaker is not credible. So if, if you are not a trustworthy or credible person and you bring the gospel message, well, maybe they're not going to believe you because you don't have any, any credit with them. Or, lastly, number four, maybe the listener just will not believe. That, um, yeah, that should, that last point on the screen should actually be indented. It should be the fourth point. Okay? Maybe the listener won't believe. So because of these things, okay, God is revealing himself, and he wants change. All right? The historical aspect. chart here shows Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, uh, and Daniel, these larger uh, prophetic books, and it shows what they are about. And so you notice here we have the announcement of Jerusalem's destruction. Okay, Lamentations, okay, also written by Jeremiah, is a description of Jerusalem's destruction. It's, it's taking place. We're, we're, we're wailing, bemoaning the fact. And Ezekiel and Daniel, the implications of Jerusalem's destruction after the fact. And so these books demonstrate that God was sending his messengers in uh, basically before, during, and after. Their messages are, are similar, but they're also different. So you're going to have in the beginning, the message is focused on the need for repentance and the fact that if no repentance takes place right now, judgment is coming. After the fact, it's going to be a, the idea that God has not forgotten his people and that he is going to rebuild something new, because he's going to uh, maintain his covenant that he made going all the way back much further. The other thing about this is that it is framed by Framed by the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions, 
Okay? The, the book of Deuteronomy uh, is a renewal of the covenant that God makes in Exodus with, with his people. And so that is the backdrop to what's going on. And so the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then later on the Persians, are going to play a very large role in the prophetic literature uh, as God's witness, if you will. You have to use the phraseology uh, to say they're with him on here. And so those are going to be very important for understanding what's going on. The Sea of Stress has three main, main points. So prior to every time we talk about the exile or pre-exilic, before the exile, we're talking about when God's people are deported out of his kingdom. And so the, the two dates that you need to keep in your mind are 722 and 586. All right? And Israel goes to Assyria and Judah goes to Babylon. Those are the dates to, to keep in mind for those judgments. But the, the three main points of this pre-exilic stress is that Israel has broken the covenant. You better repent. Okay, that, That's like point one. You broke the deal. You broke the covenant. Repent now. What does this idolatry look like? <clears throat> the idolatry has to do with, really, what's been going on all along. We saw it in Exodus uh, 32 with the golden calf. It comes up with the Baals, the Asherahs, and the others as they take in, whether it's in Canaan or elsewhere, the, um, the gods of the culture and begin to live their life in those instead of trusting God. The other aspect, so the first one was idolatry. The second one is social injustice. The idea of justice is a huge, huge, huge theme in the prophets. The Ten Commandments can be divided into two groups. Most people divide them into one through four is your vertical relationship with God. Five through ten is your horizontal relationship with each other. And so the, the prophets are reinforcing this idea. This is kind of the same thing that the, the golden rule is broken down to or when Jesus was asked what's the most important command, it's love God and love your neighbor, right? Leviticus does the same thing. So the point with the prophets is let's not love your brother, which demonstrates that you don't love God. And so this horizontal relationship that are broken, this results in social injustice. So why do we have such uh, social injustice in our own culture? Because we don't follow God's ways. Like the prophets are very relevant to our modern culture, uh, especially in a Multicultural urban setting. In any setting, but especially one where you have a diverse group of people with different cultural backgrounds and different sets of values. Uh, the prophets really speak to the heart of that. And Christians have a responsibility to help make things more just, more righteous, more in line with, with God. Not that we're going to have a complete heaven on earth situation, but our responsibility is to and the third thing under this idea that Israel has broken the covenant is religious ritualism. Um, it's the one without function. It is going through the motions. It is the same thing that any of us can get caught up in, the rut of, yep, you got to tie those circles up again. 
what the worship was around. It was a result of that. So that that's all the, the first aspect of Israel breaking the covenant. The, the other area, number two, is that there's a lack of repentance. So without repentance, then you get judgment. And judgment will come to you, it'll come to the other nations, it'll come to all that do not repent. And thirdly, there's a hope beyond judgment for a glorious future and restoration both for Israel um, and even the other, the other nations are brought into it. So that, that was all under, it's framed by the Assyrians and the Babylonian um, invasion. So the ideas of, if you don't repent, the judgment's coming, yeah, that's Assyria and Babylon. The idea that uh, your social justice issues need to be fixed, yeah, if you don't, yeah, Assyria and Babylon's coming. So that's a pretty huge deal if you begin to think about it culturally and socially. So how much does God care about, I hesitate to use the word inequality, because that can mean so many different things, but injustices, I guess the more accurate and biblical term anyways, but how much does God care about injustice? Whether it's in the criminal justice system, whether it's economically, whether it's just whatever. Well, he cares enough that he's sending in the the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to wipe out Judah and destroy the temple. I say he cares quite a bit about it. Now, there's only one of the three main that I mentioned, but it is one of them. So next is the idea of the focus. Still looking at this historical aspect. Uh, here, you have the idea that God, you have, you have uh, five, one, two, three, four, five. You have five different characters that you need to keep in mind with, with the prophets, okay? The first is God. And God comes in character in several different fashions. He's father, he's king, he's lover, he's friend, he's judge. He, he's all of these characters, all right? Then you have the prophets. Well, they convey God's message to the people. Thirdly, you've got the remnant. That's the faithful followers of God's covenant. There's always a remnant. If God completely wipes out his people, what would happen to his plan? out the people, maybe the plan could not happen. So, even in the judgment, he always preserves a remnant, a small group of people, because he's got to continue it on. You can think of it like he wiped out the world, but he kept, saved Noah and the other seven, right? He started over with Abraham. He's always got this remnant. He's always got this group of people, a small group, that he is working with. Third, or fourthly, are the rebels. They continue to break God's covenant. And fifthly is the rest of the nations. They threaten Israel through military actions, through covenant-breaking practices, and they're used by God to discipline Israel. So those five, again, real quick, you basically, it's God and the prophets, and then you get three R words. The remnant, the rebels, and the rest of the nations. That's who's going to play a role throughout our, our prophetic book. You're going to constantly see that's who are the characters in every one of our prophecies. All right? That being said, let's move to the function of the prophets. Okay, what is their function? What, what do they do? How do how do they do this? Okay. First off, they hear from God. Amos three seven says, "Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing His counsel to His servants, His prophets." So God tells the prophets what to do. In 1 Samuel 9.15, it says, Now the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel, 
go to telling them. And 2 Samuel 7, 27 says, Since you, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant when you said, I'll build a house for you, therefore your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer for you. And then lastly, in Jeremiah 23, 18, For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and seen to hear his word? Who has paid attention to his word and obeyed? Jeremiah 23, 18. So the, the prophet hears from God. God speaks to the prophet, which is letter B now, to speak for God. So God has spoken to them. Now they speak for God to their contemporaries. Okay, here I want to look at a couple of the terms that are used to refer to a prophet. The first term is the term Navi. It's always um, translated as, well, I shouldn't say always because it probably really depends on the translation, but it's translated as prophet now. It designates a prophet as a spokesman for God. The term is actually first used of Abraham in Genesis 20, verse 7. The initiative for the call to be a prophet comes from God. You can see this all through the scriptures, Exodus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. And it's only the false prophet who dares to take the office upon himself. The primary object and the effect of the call was an introduction into God's presence, as the passages noted above show. This is the secret or counsel of the Lord. The prophet stood before men as men who had been made to stand before God. So they stand before God, and they get a download, if you will. And then they go stand before people, and they unload it. And that's kind of how it works. Moses became the normalized standard for a prophet in Israel's history. I mean, he, he is the icon. If you have a picture of a prophet, you know, Moses is, is the one that shows up. Aaron, though, is said to be a prophet of Moses. How can he be a prophet of Moses? Because the word refers to being a mouthpiece. So Aaron was getting all his excuses, or uh, Moses was getting all his excuses to God, and so God says, okay, fine, I'll get your brother, all right? He'll, he'll talk for you. And so Aaron is his mouthpiece. And Moses was like God to him and Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 7, verse 1. The next Hebrew term, the, the second one on the screen, <coughs> rohe, um, is from the verb to see. And we was used of a person who delivered oracles from God, normally prior to Samuel. Look at 1 Samuel 9, 6 to 9, and see this. As a seer, he would... Um, avoid evolving ideas or opinions of his own mind and would confine himself to that which God had actually shown him. The third term is Jose, is unfortunately uh, without a distinctive English equivalent and is usually translated by either prophet or seer. So, the, so you've had prophet and then you've got seer and you've got this third word which could show up as prophet or seer. Alright? So problem there is when you look at the English and it says prophet, you're like, okay, this is the first word that's always prophet, or this is that third word that is sometimes prophet or sometimes seer. So those are your primary Hebrew terms for prophet, those three. There is another um, one. I should put this up higher and put the Greek one at the end. Um, this, this one right here, Ish Elohim, Ish means man, so man of God. Um, first used of Moses in Deuteronomy and continued in use until the end of the monarchy. And so man of 
God is also used to designate uh, a prophet to come to you. The phrase denotes wholly committed or devoted to God, thus able to be trusted in spiritual God's word. The phrase is not used of any of the, the writing prophets. So uh, it's used of Moses, okay, but it's not used as of the prophets who wrote uh, prophecies, if you will. Um, Moses wrote more of the narrative. And then you have the phrase servant of God that was used by God, referring to his spokesman, but does not seem to have been used by others in reference to the prophet of God. We also have in the middle here the Greek term I throw in there, prophetes, which is going to be what you see in the New Testament or the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. What's, what's that called? 250 BC? What was it called? Septuagint, right. Okay? That designates a proclaimer of God's word as well. Alright? So, those are the different terms, okay, that come behind it, alright? This chart is a chart of the prophets from um, John Walton Andrew Hill's book. Um, it's probably Old Testament today. I don't think it's that or ocean history. I think it's Old Testament today. So, they kind of lay this out and demonstrate that there's a, a little bit of a transition in the role of the prophet over time. And so prior to the monarchy, and so what that means is before uh, Saul, monarchy starts with King Saul, right? Where you have a king, monarch, king. The prophet functions as a mouthpiece and leader. His audience is mainly the people, okay? Well, there's, there's no king yet, right? So he's not going to be speaking to a king. Uh, national guidance, maintenance of justice, and spiritual overseer. Examples are, are Moses, um, Deborah, and then we have a transition guy of Samuel. Okay. The pre-classical prophet okay, is a mouthpiece or advisor, they argue, and his audience is the king in the court. So now we have the monarchy. So you've got uh, David, we've got Saul first, and then David, and then Solomon. Each of them had a prophet that would advise them. Uh, Saul's prophet was uh, Samuel. David and uh, Solomon had uh, Nathan. Um, they give military advice. They pronounce blessing and rebuke. And so you have Nathan. You also have Elijah and Elisha and Micaiah over here. And then you have a transition of Jonah and Isaiah to the classical. And this is a mouthpiece to the social and spiritual commentator on the times. And here you notice that the audience moves to people. Now, it doesn't mean they never spoke with the king, all right? It just gets to be the added focus of the time period. The message is a rebuke concerning the current condition of society, leads to warnings of captivity, destruction, and exile, and a promise of eventually restoration. It calls for justice and repentance. And this is your writing prophets. These are the prophets who wrote stuff down. So... Isaiah is called by God. He, he writes prophecies down. Jeremiah, they, they write this stuff down. So Moses was a prophet, but he's not writing prophecies. Elijah was a prophet, but he's not writing books of prophecy, right? He's running around speaking prophecy and doing miraculous signs. See the difference? All right. So that was the terms. Now we want to look at the types, okay? The types of, of prophecies. Like, what, what did they do? The first thing we need to understand is that there are more foretellers than there are foretellers. And if you haven't heard that before, it just means telling forth, okay? 
So they're telling forth God's truth to their own generation. Most people think of the prophets and they think about all these predictions, everything in the future. So, you know, you have all these books from Isaiah to Malachi, has all this stuff about the future. Well, a lot of it's not actually. And considering where we are today, almost none of it is. So, forth tellers, telling forth God's truth to their own generation. This actually makes up about 90% of the material. And I think actually tout. Yeah, tout on page 174 in your textbook. He actually has that stat of 90%. It was um, as though the prophets were on some high eminence. This is often the distance of speaking of what he saw. Most often he saw the sins which prevailed in his own day and spoke of them. And then he would look off to the day when the nation would be taken out of the land into captivity. And he also saw eventually regathering the Jews from captivity. At times, the Spirit enabled him to look further into the future. Okay? That's what this picture is depicting. Seeing further into the future and foretell the coming Messiah. Occasionally, he still saw further into the future and spoke of the glorious time of restoration of peace in the millennium. So the prophet is, is speaking primarily in his own time period. So it's like these mountains. You know, I don't know if you've ever been like hiking up into the mountains. mountains um, and you get there and it's the top of this mountain and, and you think you're at the top and you get there and then you realize that you're not at the top and there's this whole other mountain and you've got to go higher again. Um, and that's kind of what they're talking about here. Until you get to that next you can't really see what's out in front of you. It's blocking you. And so these different aspects, one, two, three, and four, that the prophets are, are talking about. In order to get the true meaning of the words of a prophet, you have to determine in each individual utterance which of the four events is the subject. Now just think about that. Isaiah is 66 chapters long, written over um, several decades, about several different events. And so in order to figure this out, basically what we're saying is, First off, you got to try to figure out where the section breaks are, right? So, like, this is a, a prophecy here, and it breaks, and this is, like, a separate one. And then, which of these is he speaking to? So you can just imagine, just taking Isaiah as an example, 66 chapters, that's going to take a bunch of time to analyze it through. And the truth of the matter is, most of the time, people don't do that with the Bible, right? We flip it open, maybe we read devotion in the morning, and then we think we know what that prophecy is about, right? Like, seriously, in all honesty, I'm not against devotion because I like that prophecy, by the way, okay? But in all honesty, if you flip your Bible open, even if you're reading through the book, obviously that's way better, but if you flip your Bible open to the middle of Isaiah and you read five verses, um, do you really have much of a clue about what's really going on there? I mean, quite likely not. I think you're better off uh, as my father to do it, right? Or a psalm, because the, the context is uh, a shorter, more compacted thing. Again, I'm not saying you can't at all do that, or you can't get anything out of it. I'm just saying that can be a bit dangerous. So, that's foretelling, okay? So, foretellers, okay, let me go back to this, is revealing God's truth about the future. That's about 
is the primary reason many critics deny early authorship of prophetic books. They prefer their new demos and access back at home. So it's interesting. So Abraham is of Isaiah, and he says about Cyrus. Okay? Now, I hold to an early date of Isaiah, so I hold that Isaiah had predictive prophecy about a future Persian leader named Cyrus, who at the time he wrote that, which was after God revealed it to him, in 150 years before Cyrus exists, Skeptics look at that and say, no, 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 it doesn't work that way, right? Um, they first off might not even believe God exists, and second off, if he does, they don't believe he's revealing things to the prophets. So therefore, this could not have been written in, in Isaiah's time period or in that period of history. It had to have been written after Cyrus already reigned, which also we know about Cyrus. So that's the uh, divergence between the critical fellowship and the traditional fellowship on that aspect. If you look at the rest of your stats, less than 5% specifically describes New Covenant age, okay? Church age, right? Less than 2% of Old Testament prophets is Messianic, and less than 1% concerns events yet to come. So if less than 1% is about events yet to come, that means 99% plus has already taken place. And so when we think about prophecy, that needs to alter our thinking a little bit. It's not about all this stuff in the coming future. In addition to this, only 16 of the hundreds of prophets are recorded in Scripture. That's it. Now, we're talking writing prophets, okay? Generally, in narrative books, okay, we hear about them, their actions. This is Elijah, okay? What do we do? We hear what Elijah's doing. We see their actions. It's a narrative book. It's a story, and Elijah is a key character in the story. So we see what they're doing. It's not writing. Generally, in the prophetic books, we hear from them. Why? Because they wrote every message. They reproduce God's word, not their own. So you have phrases like, thus saith the Lord. This is what Yahweh says occurs more than 350 times in the prophetic books. So this is the word from God. God is speaking. Alright? Alright, let's look now at the form. The form of the prophets. Alright? There's three different methods that I have listed here. First is verbal. All right, the second is writing, and the third is symbolic act. Okay? So they could speak God's word, that's God's verbal. They could write it. Okay? They often use the Hebrew verbal form known as the prophetic perfect. Um, the Hebrew scholars have, have actually uh, you know coined this term that there's this verb form that shows up so much in the prophetic literature that it is called the prophetic perfect. Uh, the prophets use this form of speech to describe future events as though they were already happening, bringing the listener or reader into a direct experience with the full impact of their predictions. You know, God says it, you can take it to the bank. So, yeah, it's already happened. Well, no, it hasn't. Yeah, it has. It's been set in motion. He's already started the clock. You know, it's, it's like one of those things. What do you call those things that, uh, you know, you drop the ball and it goes through all these different things, right? You know what I'm talking about? What is it? Yeah, 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 those things, right? Yeah, the ball's already been dropped. Uh, no, I don't see anything yet. Yeah, okay, that's because the machine's too big for you to see it, okay? It, it's coming down the, down the slide, you know? So, uh, 
that's what's going on there. 16 writing prophets, okay, 17 books recorded in scripture that uh, Jeremiah is indicating together there. So that's why they're named after him. 11 are prior to the Babylonian uh, captivity. And I'll get to that in just a second. So 11 are prior to the Babylonian captivity. This is 586 BC. Obadiah named Jonah are unique in their preaching against foreign nations. They're not preaching against Israel and uh, Judah. Uh, there's two. So there's 11 before 586. There's two during the exile, Ezekiel and Daniel. And there's three after the exile, Zechariah, Haggai, and Jonah, during the Persian, Persian rule. So it's 11, 2, and 3. So the way to remember that, there'll be a chart up here in a little bit. But the way to remember that, I think, obviously, is if you can get the 2 and the 3, all the rest are, are the other. Right? Okay, so symbolic acts, I'm just going to touch on that for one second, literally. That's like uh, Isaiah running around naked for, for three years, right? That's the symbolic act, right? So you'll see that in Ezekiel, chapter 11, etc. So here we have the literary forms, okay, or, or the genres in the Old Testament. So you've got the, the method of the prophets, whether it's verbal writing or, or symbolic, but then you've got the literary forms. So ones that are writing, uh, how do they structure their, their material? This chart is actually literary forms throughout the Old Testament. So this is not only the prophets. You can actually divide your, your literature into prose, prophecy, and poetry. All right? And this kind of goes to our conversation about the poetry stuff. There, there is certain markers in the text that indicate this is poetry in contrast to narrative. And so when we looked at the Wisdom Literature book, we saw a lot of laments and praise um, and Proverbs and then some other forms in there. In the narratives, there's, there's law and then there's narrative stuff, which is, it's not in these circles, but that's the other answer to your friend, like the verb forms, etc., that are in the narratives. But for our purposes, we want to look at this section in the middle. So you have oracles of salvation, you have announcements of judgment, and you have apocalyptic. Now, this can be further divided into other aspects, and you could cut this down so you have more than just three. But that's a good starting point for us. So, oracles of salvation. Okay, an oracle is just a message from God delivered by human speech. Right? So, that's when it says oracles, prophecy, same thing, kind of. A combination of the promise of salvation and the proclamation of salvation. Okay, that's what that is. Let me see if this is on screen for you. There we go. All right, so the oracles of salvation, they're a combination of promise and proclamation of salvation. The promise treats Israel as a person, addressing her needs by using the form of an oracle of assurance. References to the future, radical change, blessings, hope, all indicate this aspect. And the proclamation responds to communal lament and thus has much in common with the lament genre. So what you have here is if God is wanting to bring hope, okay, you should talk about the promise or the proclamation, and it's going to be called an oracle of salvation. All right? So this is not going to be the judgment. The messenger formula authenticates the messenger and assures 
since the word of Yahweh. And the word of salvation assures that God has not forgotten about them. And then you go back. So there's kind of this assurance that, <coughs> yeah, things look really bad, but they're going to get better. I'm, I'm going to do something about this, okay? So that's for the oracles of salvation. Now, the next one, and this is the one that is uh, much more detailed, and this is the one you're going to see a lot of all through the prophets, all right? Not that you won't see that, you will, but the next one has to do with the announcements of judgment, okay? In general, what you're going to find is this. There's a statement of punishment. There's uh, one, two, three, four, four things, all right? There's a statement of punishment. It might have a contrast motif with the offense versus the benefits received from Yahweh. In other words, um, yeah, I've delivered you from Egypt. Uh, I've rained down man and quail. I've given you water out of a rod. And you do what? You know, that's, that's the contrast there, right? It um, may have a sign connected to it, like Isaiah 7.14 and the signs that Ahab. The sign is related to the uh, announcement, okay? Not the accusation or the reason. Alright, so the sign is, is about the announcement of what God's going to do. And also, you begin as an individual judgment. Um, the, the way, if you, if you look through the, the history of, of the scriptures, you see that there's these judgments against individuals, but now that Israel is a nation, that same form that was used, that same genre, is used against the nations. The book of Ezekiel, and later on, this form seems to loosen up a bit. It's harder to tell exactly where, where things are. <coughs> um, usually, if it's against an individual, it's going to be a second person address, but if it's a nation, uh, it's usually a third person address. So you can see that, you can see in the, the text, there's the, the words, the verbiage, etc., which one we're talking about. Okay, the form. Okay, the form generally has two parts. There's the first person speech of God intervening to take action. And then the third person announcement explaining the result of divine intervention. Alright? Now, just a, a side comment quickly. Pretty much any time we're talking about forms, genres, etc. It doesn't matter if it's Old Testament, it could be New Testament, the, the form of a New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul follows, etc. Take it down the that is the, the way it is, but also realize there's always exceptions. Alright? So when Paul's writing, he can make adjustments. When the the prophets are giving these uh, prophecies from God and they're writing them down, it doesn't have to follow the form exactly and they can vary stuff, they can move stuff around, but this is the general form and guideline that follows. And why do they use it? Because uh, that's how he wrote in that time period. So the form generally has the two parts. The, the first person speech of God intervening to take action third person announcement explaining the result of the divine intervention. The structure, okay, so form structure is the actual layout that you're going to see in the text. So when we look at some of these um, later on, you'll see one, the commissioning. Okay, So this is, you know, Isaiah has been commissioned by God. You'll see the messenger formula. God says, okay, in King James it'd be like, thus saith the Lord, thus says Yahweh. Then you'll find the accusation. Usually there's a general, and then there's a concrete or a specific. Okay, so you've been rebellious, and then here's your re 
value back. Then there is not always, but sometimes, which is why it's in parentheses, a second messenger formula. Okay, the messenger formula is thus says, or is therefore thus says. Some would argue that uh, that the the therefore is directly connected with with the announcement of judgment in contrast to the accusation side. And then you will have, fifthly, the announcement of judgment. So you have five parts, commissioning, messenger formula, accusation, another messenger formula, the announcement of judgment. And again, just like the accusation, general and specific. All right? So if you looked at uh, Hebrews 1.3,
Addresses a serious crisis of faith. In other words, if God's in control, why is this happening? Okay? It probably is the most misunderstood genre. It's basically a special type of prophecy, and it's emotionally appealing with figurative language throughout. Examples include Ezekiel, Revelation, and then portions elsewhere. So, why is there so many interpretations of Revelation and Ezekiel? Because it's the mixture of symbolic and figurative language causes us to make it hard to understand because of the lack of the shared spirit knowledge. Alright. So that moves us to uh, the setting of the prophet. Okay? So if we think about our Old Testament uh, timeline, we can think a little bit about when the prophets spoke. So from Moses to Malachi, these are rough numbers, okay? Think about a thousand years. All right? Moses to Malachi, 1400 to about 400 BC, you're talking a thousand years. The Old Testament historical time period from Abraham, so if you add Abraham back in, you're talking about 1600 years, all right? So over 1500 years, give or take, 1600 years. All right, the, the prophets are, so right down here, if you can see, Seems I'm kind of in the way here. So we're talking 750 down to about 5. Okay? Or 4. So it's 200 years is the time period we're talking about. The setting for that is unprecedented political, military, economic, and social upheaval. Alright? So there's a lot of instability going on in the world during this time period. There's an enormous level of religious unfaithfulness and disregard for the Mosaic Covenant. There's shifts in population and national boundaries. <coughs> These of you that are in the backgrounds class, this might make a little more sense. Um, have you had AP backgrounds class? So, basically, when Euphrates and Tigris River, Mesopotamia, uh, Mediterranean Sea, Egypt. Basically, throughout history, you can kind of view this area as a, a constant seesaw of world powers uh, grappling for power. They're either coming from over here or from over here, and, and the goal is basically to control the whole thing. Right? And this is the center of the trade route. Right? You wonder how, how in the world did um, Solomon get so wealthy? Because he's got the only toll booth on the whole highway. You know, that's kind of what it is. Everyone's got to go through here, and Solomon controls it, right? So he's just bringing in the taxes, right? Now, so we got Mesopotamia. So th this is going to be um, uh, Persia, uh, Babylon, Assyria, 
so these are the world powers that we're looking at. If you go further back, you had Egypt involved also. So uh, at one point, Egypt had control all the way over to here, all right? At another point, all right, where we're getting to in the prophetic literature, Assyria and Babylon are going to control from here all the way over to here. Later on, by the New Testament time period, that's changed, and now it's Rome up here who's going to sweep down, and well, Greece will do it first, is going to sweep down Alexander the Great, and he's going to control all of this, and then Rome is going to do the same thing. Okay? So that's what's going on with these empires going back and forth. So who's in the middle of it all? Well, Israel's in the middle of it all. So they're, they're feeling the risk of ramification from this. And what's happening all the time? Well, if, if these guys are, are dominating and they're advancing further and further and further, they have three choices. I'm trying to simplify. They could surrender and side with them and pay taxes to them. They could beg Egypt for help and fight them off and hopefully win. Or they could do neither and trust God, which is kind of the running theme throughout. Now, from a human standpoint, that often sounds very foolish. But now we're back to our wisdom literature about what is real wisdom, the fear of the Lord, right? If you fear God, that you trust God. So that's kind of the crux of the issue. Easy to talk about. Hard to stand on. When you got 185,000 Assyrian soldiers camped around your entire property. That's what the battle is. So, this is the setting. The earliest prophet, okay, Amos, ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II, while Malachi, the last prophet, ministered around 450 B.C. So the entire span of prophetic ministry is approximately 300 years. That's a chart that was up a minute ago. The Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persian empires dominate this whole ancient Near Eastern period. This is what I was just demonstrating on the board. So a little bit of the historical interplay here, all right? Everything I'm talking about right now is all under the, the first point from the screen. So Genesis records the first part of redemptive history, ending with Israel over in Egypt, okay? So if, if you're not familiar with this part, um, skip the Garden of Eden stuff and all that for a minute and start with Abraham, okay? Abraham comes from Ur up here, goes up to Haran, his daddy died, then he comes on over here to Canaan, all right? Then there's a famine in the land, he runs to Egypt, okay, uh, get some food, willing to sacrifice his life, etc. Anyways, he ends up back over here, has Isaac, Isaac has uh, you know, Jacob, then uh, Jacob's got 12 sons, Joseph ends up being sold over to Egypt, so he's over here, then there's a famine, so all the family gets in Egypt, then we're here for 400 years, then Moses brings them out, then Moses dies, then Joshua helps take over the land, okay? then we begin to settle into the land, okay? After Joshua, you have this uh, continued period of, of turmoil and judges. Eventually, we get to where the monarchy, you have the uh, king, Saul, David, Solomon, 
that's when these prophets start coming into the picture. That's also the period <clears throat> when Egypt's power is lessened, and now we got the powers from over here that are coming into play. Darius of Babylon, Egypt's person. So remember that. Did I tell you the first week? I think I told you the first week. How do you remember that? A brief pause, God is ready. Right? So, a brief pause. So all of that is the 
unprecedented political, military, economic, social of the world of, of these empires going back and forth. Here's a little uh, letter from Jesus. Okay? The enormous level of religious unfaithfulness and disregard for the Mosaic Covenant is what we have repeatedly talked about and will come up all the time if God's covenant is broken. And the conscription population and national dominance. Why does that happen? Well, that happens in large part due to number one. Okay? When, when new countries come in, okay, Assyria comes in, when Assyria comes in and they deforce in 722, okay, they're, they're going to take the Israelites and they're going to send them to Samaria. Well, it becomes Samaria, right? And they're going to intermix, right? What they did is they mixed up all the people. If, if you have all these people mixed up, they're not going to um, join together and rise up against you. So it's very multi-racial in a sense, right? And so that's the origin of them in the Old Testament. Where did they come from? Well, it's because once until 722 when the Assyrians took over and they deported them and then after some years they moved to Samaria and then you got the Samaritans. That's why the Judaites, if you want to call them that, okay, the, the ones that were not part of Israel, remember there's ten tribes and there's more or less the area of Dan and Judah uh, to the south, right? And so they the first one, alright? So what you have is you're, is you're looking here, is you can see two things. One, you can see the order that they do their ministry in, and another thing you can see is which one is in this case and why. So Obadiah, Joel, Joel, Jonah, and Amos, they actually do their, their ministry first, okay? Um, Isaiah is, is next. Isaiah is doing ministry at uh, the same time as Hosea and Micah do ministry. Alright? So that's how you can read this chart here, alright? So Based on what we said earlier, you can also connect a couple of dots, okay? So these are your post-exilic, okay? So after the exile, after the 586 happens. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Um, or, uh, I'm sorry, that's post, that's return. Um, and Daniel and Ezekiel is the after. So, minus the color portions at the bottom, okay, I got this chart off the internet and then I adapted it, okay, so what I've done is I have, <coughs> I've boxed the prophets on here and I have put which world power was 
in power, which empire was ruling, so to speak, okay? So the light blue is Assyria, uh, the pink is Babylon, and the yellow is Persia. So you can see from this chart, based on which uh, prophet is prophesying, you can see which was the, quote, pagan world empire that was ruling. You can also see from the rest of the chart uh, what the time period is, uh, where they fit in with the books of the Bibles, uh, First and Second Kings, etc. Um, if you will. So, does that all make sense? Yeah. Okay. And then I have one more because you know I, I like my charts, right? So this one I showed you this one before. You have this probably from the, the first week. Uh, this one simply divides it up into the history as well, and it lists all the books for you right here based on when they prophesied and who the other people were. So you can see with Isaiah, we got uh, Solomon and Elijah here in the, the 900s uh, BC, takes place during First Kings, etc. It's also the same uh, time period that you can see Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon is all within. And this one, simply, um, this out for you, the prophets before, during the exile, and after the exile, okay? And further breaks down here is it's Israel or Judah, all right, the Jews in Babylon, and the remnant after the returning, okay? All right, the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations connectingly, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So depending on what you're reading or who you're reading, you may see them list four prophets, you may see them list five. It just depends on whether they're talking Lamentations or not. Okay? It is four prophets, it's, uh, it's five writings. The organization. The organization is pretty simple. If it's called major, it's longer. If it's minor, it's shorter. Because we follow through with the way our English Bibles are, are structured, then you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and then you got the 12 minor prophets. Okay? 12 plus 5 is the 17, minus 1 is Lamentations and Jeremiah, same author, you got 16 there. 16 authors, 17 prophets. Alright. And then this chart here, uh, you probably can't read it from back there. I'm not sure if I uploaded it yet or not, but if I didn't, I'll try to remember to. But this simply is a chart that has uh, more than the prophets. It's got all, all the books of the Bible, the Hebrew and, and what, the, what the name means. And so you can see from here what the, the names of the prophets mean. So Isaiah, God is saved, or um, if you see it differently, the, um, has is, is past tense. Um, God's salvation is how I'm going to probably say it later on. All right, let's look at the themes of the prophets. There's a couple of different themes that we want to discuss that are repeated uh, quite a bit. The first theme I want to mention is sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. So if we look at Isaiah just briefly, we'll see this displayed in this particular passage, but you'll see it actually displayed throughout multiple places. Isaiah, I think 40 is a, is a full chapter that uh, really deals with it. It's a pretty powerful chapter. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 to 15, says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in his hand is my wrath. I will send him against the godless nation. I will command him 
the dough, which the people destined for my race, take spoil and plunder and trample them down like clay in the street. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he plans. But they take intent to destroy and cut off my nation. For he says, aren't all my commanders priests? Isn't Talmud like Tarshimus? Isn't Hamath like Arpad? Isn't Samaria like Damascus? As my hand sees the idolatrous kingdom, whose idols exceeded those of Jerusalem and Samaria, and as I did to Samaria and its idols, will I not also do to Jerusalem and its idols? Okay, so what's going on here? So God's saying, listen, I'm going to use Assyria to do my bidding. But the king of Assyria thinks that he's just doing his own thing. He's just taking over everything, and everybody will become his vassals. They'll become his servants because he's going to rule the world. That's what he thinks. What he doesn't realize is, no, I'm behind all this, and I'm going to use him to dish out my my discipline on my people. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to just make his rule over. That's what's going on. That's what God's saying here. I think I don't want to read the the whole chapter because I don't want to get uh, too sidetracked. But at the same time, um, some phenomenal passages of scripture that really help us to understand God's um, sovereignty. Um, When you look at uh, Isaiah 40, look at verse uh, 18 and, and following, who do you compare God with? What likeness do you compare him to? An idol, something that a smelter casts, and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver wells for it. To one who shapes a pedestal, choosing wood that does not rot, he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing. He makes judges of the earth to be irrational. They're barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither in a whirlwind, carries them away like stubble. Who will you compare me to? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. That's the Hebrew phrase, the Holy One from Isaiah. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the starry host by number. He calls all of them by name because of his great power and strength, and not one of them is missing. I mean, the power and the sovereignty of God is just a, a complete and running canon through all of Scripture, and definitely escapes through the prophets. So that's the sovereignty of God. Um, the next one is the holiness of God. The holiness, completely and utterly separate and unique. There was nobody like him, which we just read, okay? Um, he is completely different. The Lord's holiness or uniqueness leads to the conclusion that there is no other God, because he's completely separate, he's completely different than any else and everybody else. Because God alone is great, and because he alone is holy, the worship of other gods is sheerest folly. John Oswald says that in, in his commentary on Isaiah, the New, New International Commentary in the Old Testament. Christopher North says that the book of Isaiah is explicitly monotheistic, especially chapters 40 to, 40 to 56. And John Skinner adds, Isaiah is a monotheist in the strictest sense of the term. Like, there's no, there's no play, there's no exception, there's, there's no room for anybody else on the stage. It's God and God alone. So sovereignty, holiness, the covenant obligations, which we've mentioned, um, the right relationship with God and his people, a, a call to return to God and his word is, is put out. A call to personal holiness and a call to shalom. Shalom 
Yes, it means peace, but shalom means right relationship. Shalom means everything is in its right place. Um, I, I remember there was a high school student that one time, he told me he wanted to go to dentist, and I said, oh, so you want to bring shalom to people's mouths. So, I mean, I was making a joke, but only halfway joke, right? He wants to put, like, th- that is, like, to the minutia, that's what God wants. But God's whole plan is for everything where, where it belongs, which would include your teeth in right order. You know, that's shalom in your mouth, literally. And so God wants shalom in everything. And that's why when the prophets rail about injustice, it's because injustice is a demonstration of a lack of what? Shalom. There's no shalom. There's no righteousness. There's no peace. There's no holiness. Things are not in their proper order. The next one is the day of the Lord. Um, we could spend the next hour on the day of the Lord. There's the when and the who here. Immediate judgment, eschatological judgment, and the who. Unbelievers, purifying of God's people, and salvation of God's people. In other words, um, the day of the Lord, to some degree, encompasses um, everybody and everything. I I do want to make a few comments, I think, on the day of the Lord. Uh, The day of the Lord and related ideas occur most frequently in the prophets, the parables, and the sayings of Book of Revelation and some other portions of the New Testament during the end times. Images and ideas associated with the day of the Lord can also be found in the historical books of the Old Testament and Psalms. So if you take all that together, it's actually scattered throughout the Bible in more places than you think it is. The term is sometimes used by the prophets to refer to any specific period of time in which the God of Israel intervened in human affairs to save and to judge. Isaiah 13 6, Ezekiel 13 5, Amos 5 18. In many cases, the day was named after the group of human beings that was the target of God's intervention. So we find references, for example, to the day of Midian in Isaiah 9.4, the day of Edith in Ezekiel 39. Many times the day is named for what God was to do or what was to happen, the day of trouble in Ezekiel 7.7, the day of rebuke, Hosea 1.9, day of punishment, Isaiah 10.3, day of vengeance in Isaiah 53.4. Day of doom in Jeremiah 5.12. Day of darkness, Joel 2.2. Or day of the Lord's anger in Zephaniah 3.2. So all of these are about the day. So you don't have to have the day of the Lord. You can talk about the Lord part, and if it has the day, look for what's going on in the passage, and see if it's related to this theme of the day of the Lord, God's judgment. In some prophetic texts, the day of the Lord refers to an event so cataclysmic that it ends an age of the world. So you can look in, in Joel, or Joel 2.28-3.21, Zephaniah 14, verses 1-21. This usage passed over into the New Testament, where the day of the Lord refers to God's judging action when Christ returns at the end of the age. In 1 Thessalonians, for example, chapter 5, uh, verse 2, and 2 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, and also 2 Peter 3.10. Um, these climatic events were given the name the day of the Lord because God's personal action was believed to be the decisive factor in the course of events. So it's the day of the Lord because God is doing something on that day in that situation. He is bringing the judgment. So it's also connected with the idea of um, the warfare. So in the book of Joshua, when God fights for his people, and God is using uh, hell or whatever he wants to use to fight for his people, it's in there. Um, most frequently, God's appearance and action is 
described in terms of cosmic catastrophe, including raging fires, whirlwinds and storms, the shaking of the heavens and the earth, floods and the darkening of the heavenly bodies, earth, or either by clouds or eclipses or by some unexplained phenomena. These poetic descriptions of God's personal intervention on behalf of Israel, for instance, in Psalm 18, are heavily invented, invented to the tradition of the theophanic uh, images and God's coming, God's presence uh, doing something. Uh, the blowing of the trumpet is often mentioned either as a signal of God's appearing or as a signal or alarm that God's work in judgment or salvation is about to begin. So when Jesus comes back, what are you going to hear? The trumpet, right? The trumpet of the Lord, right? Why? Well, Jesus is coming back. Well, what's he coming back for? He came the first time to bring salvation. He's coming the second time to bring judgment. And so you have that imagery all in there. There is no escape for those against whom he acts. You cannot escape from God. So several passages describe a process of eliminating in which God employs several methods against his enemies, and every one of them is eventually destroyed by one method or another. Um, this could include fear, pit, etc. You find that in Isaiah 24, 18, Jeremiah 48, 43, 44, lions, bears, snakes, sword, pestilence, famine. Um, God has the entire creation at his disposal. He calls the heavens and earth to witness against your misdeeds. He's got all of creation at his disposal. Um, he could wreck you with grasshoppers. He could wreck you with bears, snakes, or hailstones, or anything else he wants to. Um, this inescapability of God's actions may also be indicated by describing his overwhelming power and his scope. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 12 to 21, you see a picture of destruction so universal that people will hide in caves. Revelation 6, 14 and 15 adds the scene of people vainly calling the mountains to cover them in order to escape from God's wrath. But can they escape from God's wrath? No. It's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord comes. Can they escape from that? Well, surely not. Invariably, the day of the Lord is associated with acts of violent judgment. It's also the day in which the oppressed people of God get delivered. So, it is the worst day of your life is when you're rebellious against God. But if you're in a righteous place with God, it's the day that is entering into a salvation and a deliverance. And in Revelation, you see the saints cry out, How long, O Lord? How long? Right? They're waiting for that day. In those days when God judges and when God also sits down in the judgment at the throne. So, the day of the Lord, I, I could go um, much, much further. The day of the Lord is a huge uh, theme of, of Scripture. It is um, not only a theme of Scripture, I... Um, I have something I'll I'll play for you after. I think we're going to take a break in a minute. And um, when we come back, I will play you, play you something. I was going to go all the way to the end. Actually, I will. Let me, let me finish this page, and then uh, I'll come back to my comment on that when we come back from, uh, from the break. So, the day of the Lord. The Messiah is the next theme, the Messiah and his, his kingdom. Um, this is where the hope is. The anointed one, um, anointed means Messiah. Christ means the anointed, the Messiah from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 24, 6 and 2 Samuel uh, 1, 14 uh, teach us about that. And so those are some of the themes. The last thing I want to cover in my intro is interpreting the prophets. 
And this will be fairly quick, but I just want to uh, list some pointers for you. Uh, and I have it under two headings, the text and the tools. And so the first thing, obviously, is, is the text, okay? Uh, you need to study the scriptures. The, the text involves the genre, which includes all the stuff that we just talked about. That's why we really need to cover it. Um, there's no way in a course like this, it's a survey course, we really can knock it down into all the details. Uh, we do a lot of, of big picture overview stuff, and, and the goal really is that you're going to take this and hopefully you're going to utilize it so that when you teach the um, Bible or you read the Bible, whether it's a Sunday school class or your kids get a t-shirt, whatever you're doing, um, that it's going to help inform that and make you um, a better student of the Word and a better teacher of the Word and a, a better um, ambassador of the Gospel. But uh, the text, the genre, includes oracles, visions, short narrative sections, symbolic acts, and direct dialogue. There's no exact parallel in English um, to, to these things, some of these acts, okay? And so it's hard to translate. It's hard to understand what uh, is going on. But within the text, you have a few things that we have talked about to some degree before. You've got poetry. It's fewer words, increased intensity. It's, it's all through the prophets. You've got the parallelisms. Right, the the figures of speech that we've talked about with um, the synonymous parallelisms, the synthetic and the antithetic that we talked about in the wisdom literature, they're all through here as well. Um, in Isaiah one two, let's see if I can have a couple of quick examples here for you. In Isaiah one two, listen heavens and pay attention earth. The Lord has spoken. Um, you say heavens and earth. I don't think those are the same thing. Really, the synonymous parallelism is saying it's not. It's just, I'm calling you to listen to me. In uh, 1 3, uh, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, you got actually a double thing going on here. The, fir the first two are, are complementary sentences or something, but the first two go together, the second two go together, and it's a contrast between them, antithetic. And then you've got uh, synthetic in, in 1 4. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evil doers, enslaved children, and seek buildings. Okay? You abandon the Lord, you despise, you turn your backs. And so in chapter 1, the first four verses, you have all three types of, of parallelisms in the first four verses. So you can just anticipate they're, they're everywhere. The figures of speech, which are used to describe literal reality in literary terms. Okay? You've got analogies. All of these types that are listed there. Simile, metaphor, um, hypocatastasis. That means comparison by implication. That's what that word means. Comparison by implication. Hyperbole and personification or anthropomorphism. I mentioned Brendan this morning and I forgot. But it's okay. I just tell you the names of those. Um, figures of speech by Bullinger. Um, I think it's B-U-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Um, that is the work on figures of speech and it really will blow your mind um, it's literally this thick and I don't know how many figures of speech there are but there's stuff if you just flip the book open you won't be able to pronounce the words um, and it's all these different types of figures of speech of how language is used and you've got references to all over the place going on so if you want like the book on figures of speech that's what it is, it's Bollinger and it's like I don't know, 150 years old um Substitution, okay? Economy and cynic jokey. If I 
said that last one right. What those two have to do with is using the whole in place of a part and using the part in place of the whole. So in other words, I mentioned your leg, but I mean your whole body. Or you can do the opposite. So you can do either one depending on the context and what you're trying to say. All right? Irene and sarcasm. I'll show you the rest. The fourth one is wordplay. That's rarely translatable into English. You're not going to catch it. It says it's a wordplay, and it's based on the actual key. It's based on how the Hebrew sounds, and, and you're not going to get that in English, so you're going to completely lose it. I thought I had an example of that here, but um, I guess I just didn't write it. All right. The tools. This is the last aspect right here. So you've got the text and the tools in interpreting it. So the first thing is the Bible. Okay? Um, this is where Alan Ross's stuff comes in. I told you there was two uploads. One was the World Empires. We've already kind of talked about that. So there's a, a two-page uh, document on the World Empires. Read that. It'll help you. The other thing is, it's about 15 pages probably, is his exegetical guidelines using Isaiah chapter 6. Um, listen to, to what he uh, says here. He says, the first thing you do is verify the exact wording of the text that you think is the best rendering in English. Without Hebrew, you are at a decided disadvantage. You have to trust the work of others more than you might wish to do so. Select one good modern translation as your working base, and then choose two more to work through line by line to compare translations. So if you don't know Hebrew or Greek, it's not the end of the world. People have already translated from Hebrew or Greek. And in English, you have over 250 translations of the Bible. So you, you find a starting point, like i got a base translation, this is what I use, okay? And then you get two more that are not going to translate it the same way. And just those translations alone, without even Greek and Hebrew, is going to cause you to scratch your head and say, well, which one does it mean? Because that don't mean the same as that. Now, hopefully that's not in every verse, right? But, it says, were there merely switching synonyms or stylistic arrangements, don't bother pausing. Okay, so if, you were, if it says pale and can, you're like, okay, pale can be a can, and can be a pale, so, okay, we'll move on. All right? Then don't worry about it. But where the ideas are different, note them. And then as you study the passage, decide which which is the best, not which you like best, and change the base text accordingly. Now, some people might think, what? You can't change the wording here. You're changing God's word. Okay, well, somebody already decided which word to put in here. It's a translation, right? So you're really not changing God's word. You're trying to make it the, the best translation for the best use. Okay? So see further his exegetical method applied to Isaiah 6. Okay, that's all from Alan Ross. Alan Ross is an Old Testament Hebrew scholar. He's got a, a, a textbook on interpreting Hebrew or something. So anyways, I put that up there for your benefit. 2, 3, 4, and 5 are some other tools on interpreting the prophets. All right? Bible dictionary or encyclopedia for background information. Specifically, this should probably be a sub-point, but Bible background commentary. That's obviously going to deal specifically with background issues, culture, etc. Uh, the Zondervan one is called the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary, and uh, it's usually ridiculously expensive unless it's on sale, especially in electronic versions like Logos, because Zondervan has a ridiculous deal that they don't let people put their stuff on sale except when they say so. Um, and then I think I read that Baker is um, making one. It's not out yet, though. Um, so for the Old Testament, the best one I know of is the Zondervan one. For the New Testament, there's a few others. Victor has some, uh, some that 
get. Commentaries for explanations and a Bible handbook combines some of all of the above. Okay? Any questions on that? Okay, we're going to uh, take a break. I'm going to grab that other file. Um, hopefully, I'll get it. And I'll start off with just something quasi-fun in the beginning, and then we're going to jump into Isaiah. So let's take 10. It's 9 minutes to 1, so let's start at just after 